Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. So the big news of the week, I'm sure you've all heard, is the death of Queen Elizabeth II, um, which just occurred uh, on the 8th this past Thursday. And uh, as you know, she was the Queen of England for 70 years and 214 days, which clocks in as the longest of any British monarch and the second longest recorded reign of any monarch of any sovereign country. Um, I believe Louis the, what was it? Louis the 14th of France actually did reign a little longer because I think he took the throne when he was like four years old or something like that. But uh, significant events, you know, we've all known that the Queen was getting up there in age and certainly the you know inevitable will eventually occur but still comes as a surprise and a shock for those that uh care to follow such things and um certainly a sad day for the entire world when someone of such uh historical significance passes it's really amazing when you think about it all the things that happened to the United Kingdom during the time that Elizabeth was queen. I was reading about this earlier and, um, you know, she became queen when she was only 25 years old. And at the time she ruled over, uh, seven independent Commonwealth countries, of course, the United Kingdom, but in, uh, 1952, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, which is now called Sri Lanka, were all part of the Commonwealth countries that uh, named or regarded uh, the British Queen as their Queen. And think about all the things that happened during those 70 years. Um, All of the uh, changes that happened with the way the government was formed, uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland, all the... um, problems with uh, Ireland separating from the United Kingdom, uh, the decolonization of Africa, uh, the United Kingdom joining the European Union and then later withdrawing from the European Union, and um, all of the many things that happened over the course of what most of us who aren't over 70 years old have always known her as the Queen of England and and nobody else, (laughs) no other monarch, at least in people my age's uh, lifetime. So, you know, it's it's interesting how the <clears throat> British citizens have a variety of opinions on this. I've, I've talked to many folks that are either from England or are very familiar with uh, the culture there. And, you know, not everybody is a huge fan of the monarchy. There are, There's a significant faction that has sort of a sentimental... Um, uh, you know, affinity for the whole idea of the monarchy, but there are certainly plenty of people that think it's an outdated and kind of a silly idea. You know, and you'll ask a lot of people that, especially those involved with, um, you know, progressive type uh, politics, um, believe that it's a tremendous waste of money <laughs> and squandering of resources, which I suppose there's an argument for that. But there's, again, that sentimentality like, oh, we love our queen. But, um, you know, the monarchy in England is basically just, 
it's been left to a tradition and a figurehead. So whoever the reigning queen or now, I guess, King Charles III um, really just stands as a symbolic leader because the government runs independent of the wishes or whims, I suppose, of the king or the queen. Um, and over the course of American history, uh, England's gone through some tremendous changes. In fact, England now represents, or, or resembles, I should say, America much more than uh, it did when America became a country. So a lot of the changes that we've made, a lot of the things that we've implemented in our political system, including our justice system, have been adopted and mirrored in countries all over the world, and England's not... Um, excluded from that list, uh, a lot of the improvements to their representative system by having um, a parliament and the head of state with the equivalent of our president is their prime minister, not not the queen, but uh, somebody who is actually part of the political process and engages in um, that representative capacity of the citizens. So, but of course, England's a very old country. Uh, there's been a monarchy for over a thousand years, and I guess keeping in tradition with um, just honoring the the general idea that there is, in fact, a queen or a king is something that just kind of perseveres through, through history. Um, so uh, I, I've had opportunities to observe court hearings in various different countries. In fact, whenever I go on a trip to somewhere else, I try to make a point of going to the courthouse and seeing how things occur. And it's really kind of still odd in England because, yes, they do still wear wigs uh, and they wear those big black robes and there's this formality of proceedings and uh, they still have what's called the dock, where um, an accused person, the defendant, has to sit in a separate part of the courtroom. Um, almost, it's not quite like a cage, but it's a different like area, segregated area in the courtroom. And, uh, well, it, it seems a little primitive, but um, a lot of the the rule of law that we share with England, you know, a lot of the very basic notions that we have of fairness came from the English common law system. The, in fact, the entire idea of precedent, when we cite cases in the common law, that came from English jurisprudence. Um, England was one of the primary countries that relied upon the idea that an appellate court or a higher court could establish the rule of law for lower courts to follow. And that had not been the rule of thumb for most governments. Um, there were some that had variations on on that same sort of concept, but the true concept of what we call common law, the, the law that um, is developed not only by statute, but also by case law decisions, was founded in, a, in the English system. The general idea of what due process of law means came from English innovations in um, dealing with trying to trying to add more fairness to the system in recognition of the fact that a society is stronger if it believes in justice. Now, you know that 
England had a history of uh, almost brutal uh, forms of quasi-justice and things like um, interrogations or forcing somebody to to testify on their own behalf, being scrutinized. I mean, if you go back far enough, it included things like torture, you know, um, at a trial. But uh, over the years, there were a lot of innovations that eventually took hold. And, And to some extent, those same legal innovations have have taken hold in most civilized countries all, all over the world. So, um, you know, we share a lot uh, in common, our heritage with that of England. Of course, we were born out of uh, the colonial period when we were British subjects, but also the fact that, ironically, our prime enemy during the Revolutionary War and during the War of 1812 eventually became our closest ally. And um, that has been the case for quite some time. You know, even during the Civil War, there were questions about um, the interference of England in in um, trying to disrupt our country uh, and favor the secessionists, um, both financially and uh, politically speaking. So, But we've come a long way since then. So we'll hopefully all remember um, Queen Elizabeth fondly. We'll see what happens going into the future. I know there's a lot of controversy, of course, surrounding the royal family. And uh, I I don't take a whole lot of keen interest in that, but my wife does seem to follow it um, pretty closely. I don't know why it's so fascinating, but, um, you know, a lot of drama, I guess, is something that captures people's attention. So um, we'll have more. Uh, on this and many other topics when we come back right after these messages. I was talking to um, somebody recently who was a frequent listener of the show, and he asked me if I could um, go through what the current state of the law is as it relates to drunk driving penalties. And I do this every once in a while just to remind folks what the law is. And uh, shockingly, uh, I have people come in my office uh, at least several times a week, and they're su- after they've been arrested for a drunk driving offense, they're shocked to learn what the true penalties are that they're facing. And it's it's out there; it's publicly available. If you read the news or if you follow changes in the law, you should know these things, especially if there's a prior conviction somewhere in your record. But the vast majority of the time, people are not aware of what of how this process works but i can tell you in a general sense wisconsin utilizes a gradiated system or gradual increases in punishment and over the years it's gotten tighter and tighter with shorter and shorter time frames or that that are um applicable or i should say longer look back periods because starting in 1999 which has been quite a while since then by now. But starting then, they implemented what's called a 10-year look-back period for all offenses. So going back to 1989 is where you start counting, with a couple of notable exceptions. If there's a homicide by intoxicated use of a motor vehicle or homicide by operation of a motor vehicle with a prohibited alcohol concentration anywhere in someone's past, then that will count as a prior conviction. Putting that aside, 
starting in 1989 going forward, all convictions count, with another exception. That is, that someone under the current state of the law can have a first offense, and then if 10 years goes by, they can start over again and have another first offense, okay? But that rule does not apply if someone gets a third offense. So someone could have a first offense, 10 years can go by, they get another first offense, but if they get another one after that, it's a third. So someone would jump from a first to a first to a third. Now, putting that 10-year kind of exception aside, what happens is the prosecutor, when they get an arrest report, they'll look and see how many prior convictions are on the person's record. If it's a first offense, if it truly is a first offense, then the penalties, as you probably know, are completely non-criminal. You can't go to jail. You can't be placed on probation. There can be a consequence on your license where you'll have to have an occupational license. And depending on whether or not the driver refused a chemical test or not, there can be a waiting period involved before someone's eligible to obtain an occupational license. Also, if someone has more than 0.15 in a blood or breath test, or if the person refuses any of those tests, there can be a mandatory ignition interlock required as well. And that's a separate requirement on top of any revocation period where someone might have to have an occupational license. So there's ramifications involved, even with the first offense. And uh, there's monetary penalties, the total fines, if someone just walks in and pleads guilty on a first offense, amount to close to $1,000. It's like $900, but then you have to factor in the cost of getting an alcohol assessment and having to install an ignition interlock device if you have to. So it can be pretty pricey. Now, with a second offense, the, the uh, penalties start to increase because a second offense, drunk driving, or what we call OWI, is a criminal charge. And someone can go to jail for it. In fact, the minimum penalty is five days in jail. The maximum is six months. So anywhere within that range, someone can be sent to jail. On top of that, the revocation periods um, increase. It goes up to a minimum of 12 months, up to uh, 24 months on a second offense, and somebody has to pay higher fines. There is a mandatory ignition interlock requirement for any second offense or higher, and that has to, has to be installed. There's really not any way around it. There is one exception to that, but it's very complicated, and I can get into that either on another time or maybe later in the show if there is time. But um, you're looking at mandatory jail time. You heard me say there's a minimum of five days. That means a mandatory minimum, and the judge can't go below that. So those are the consequences that someone faces on a second offense. Now, the third offense, yes, it starts getting much more serious, and someone's facing up to a year in jail at that point. The mandatory minimum starts at about 45 days on, on, on a current third offense-type scenario. Again, mandatory ignition interlock. There's a waiting period before you can get an occupational license of 45 days, and it, it makes things much more difficult. Now, here's the other thing. On a third offense or higher, it's a mandatory 
sentencing upon conviction and mandatory beginning of the sentence upon conviction. So everything has to happen at once if it's a third offense or higher. And this is a rule that went into effect based on a case from quite some time ago. <clears throat> it was a doctor in Waukesha that got sentenced, ironically, on a second offense, not a third offense, but he got sentenced on a second offense. He was given some time to report to jail, and later in the same day, he had self-medicated with some opiates and ended up killing um, a woman and her daughter and her unborn granddaughter um, in a very serious accident. And there was some outcry over this, and that was what led to the creation of this law that someone has to go to jail right away, like immediately, um, if they're convicted on a third offense. A fourth offense, again, the penalties are increasing here. We've got, it becomes a felony, so you lose your firearm rights and all these other, you know, right to vote if you're serving any time or on probation for that offense. And you know, so the penalties get higher. Someone can go to prison on a fourth offense, although it's not mandatory. Now, on a fifth offense and sixth offense, the penalty structure is the same in the sense that there is a prison term. It's supposed to be at least 18 months of initial confinement and then extended supervision after that. There's a bit of a controversy right now as to whether or not that is mandatory or not because the statute is kind of poorly drafted so that's something that's working its way up through the courts then you have mandatory prison for sevenths eighths ninths and so on and it's all in the statutes we, we don't see those too often but um it, it's important to know that a lot of these things that happen as a result from a, a drunk driving conviction if you have one are mandatory and cannot be altered by the judge i get that question all the time Someone will come in and say, well, I know I'm guilty of a third offense, but I just don't want to go to jail. That's all I want. Well, listen, sir, <laughs> if you do get convicted, you have to go to jail and you have to do it immediately. Um, so, you know, that's just something to be aware of. These are all laws that people are supposed to be aware of. You're supposed to know that these are consequences. Why? Because you've heard the old saying, ignorance of the law is no defense. And that's true. So when a law is passed and it gets put in the books, every single one of us is deemed to know that. And when you say, I didn't know that, it doesn't matter because that's what the law is, right? So I wanted to go back and just, uh, I know we're going to come up on a break here pretty soon, but this whole concept of reporting immediately and the general issue that I want to discuss here is that we do so much tinkering with these drunk driving laws in efforts to try and stop drunk driving from occurring. We do a lot. I mean, there's new laws all the time. They're adjusting these things one way, and then they do something else, and then they do something else, and then they adjust something else, and they just keep coming up with ideas. And, you know, part of the problem is you eventually run out of good ideas and you end up just having idea ideas that aren't necessarily good. Probably the worst idea that I've seen happen in the efforts to curb drunk driving, which is a noble effort, is this mandatory permanent loss of license for a fourth offense or higher, which is the current state of the law. That is so ill-informed and, again, does not serve a deterrent effect. I have yet 
to represent any client who gets arrested for a fourth offense or higher who knew before the offense was committed that that person would lose his driving privileges for the rest of his life permanently with no occupational license. I mean, no driving, period, forever. That's the consequence. So think about that. Um, We're creating this subclass of society where people are not able to um, drive a vehicle, whether they've been drinking or not, just no driving and doesn't really act as an effective deterrent. All right, it is time for a break and we'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back. We were discussing this this law that says if it's a fourth offense or higher, that you just lose your driving privileges forever. Some people think that's a good law. And because the, the argument goes that if someone can't be trusted to um, not be a drunk driver four times in their life, then really there's no reason to allow people to continue driving. The flaw in that argument is that, number one, it doesn't stop people from driving, just like the law against drunk driving doesn't stop people from drinking and driving. It just doesn't, because it keeps happening. Now, the incidence rate, it has gone down, and there has been a cultural shift, I believe, that has been affecting all of that. But the general notion that someone should know better, and how on earth do you accumulate four drunk driving convictions? Well, if you're counting starting in 1989 going forward, yeah, I mean, they can be spread out over decades, but it still happens. So unless a person gives up drinking altogether and never drinks again, or gives up driving altogether and never drives again, there's no 100% assurance that it'll be, um, you know, that it won't be a recurring thing. I suppose, you know, yet we aren't doing very much to make the roads safer in other ways, you know, um, why do we still have automobiles that, that drivers direct control the direction of? I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. We have such advanced technology, yet we, the most dangerous thing you do every day is you get in an automobile and you trust every other driver on the road to be able to safely control their motor vehicles. You got to trust that they're not uh, drunk, sleepy, too old to drive, uh, you know, in a bad mood. Maybe the person is just a jerk, you know. I mean, there's all kinds of things that contribute to road hazards. And you can spend your whole life being a good person and providing for your family, serving your community, working hard to earn a living, and somebody else behind the wheel can take all that away from you. Yet we don't really do anything to try and address the, the, the underlying problem, which is driving is dangerous. It is the most dangerous thing that we do. Bar none. I mean, it just is. We have technologies, we have resources, we have infrastructure that could provide alternative means of transportation. We used to have an amazingly intricate and well-funded rail system a particularly robust one in Wisconsin that just faded, you know, uh, over time. You know, you used to be able to take uh, the train all over the place. You know, uh, the downtown Sheboygan had trolley, you know, tracks right going right down the middle of the street. Um, 
But, you know, we shifted away from all that, partly because the automobile industry took off and really got control over the American conscience in that regard. Did you know that Los Angeles actually had one of the, uh, an even more expansive and, and complicated subway system than New York City did? And you don't hear about that because it was closed down. It was shut down. It was shut out by the automobile industry and the idea of freedom of, uh, you know, movement and you, your idea that you can be a free spirit and get behind the wheel and go wherever you want and no one can stop you. Part of that American mentality, you know, which there's nothing wrong with that. I, I Trust me, I like, I like driving my car wherever I, I want also, but... The point is that there had been developments, there had been advancements in the infrastructure to um, alleviate not only the the burden that uh, driving puts on our own, the safety and longevity of our lives, but think about you know the pollution of the environment, all these other things that have really been problems that we try and address by tinkering around with drunk driving laws. You know, how how does it, how does somebody having to go to jail right away after a third offense, you know, how does that correct the basic problem that driving is inherently dangerous, whether someone's been drinking or not? We also have problems over the years with, and I get it, I respect advocacy, advocacy organizations that try to fight drunk driving. That's important work, but the way that it influences politics in some situations is that it makes it so um, people that make laws are trying to appease those that really want something to be done about it. So they have to have something that's visible, something demonstrable, something in writing that says, look, I did this thing and now everybody's going to be safer. But it's not true. Um, it doesn't work that way. But let me talk about why that makes no sense to me at all. Because let's say we we have automobiles, we're not going to get rid of those, right? Because that would that's probably hundreds of years in the future when, when you get back on track for trying to have some kind of meaningful, safe public transportation that's available to everybody so that you can get wherever you need to go. Uh, maybe we'll be flying around by then with jet packs or something, I don't know. But um, that'll have its own set of problems, I'm sure. But when you're talking about modern America, the, where we live now in 2022, and what is expected of somebody who is, we hope, will make a living and support themselves, support the family, have savings, be able to retire. Well, driving is essential to that. And even if somebody has some drunk drivings in their past, they could be 10, 20, 30 years ago. In fact, I've had clients that have gone 25 or more years since their last offense. And the last time around, they only had to do a couple days in jail. Now they lose their driving privileges forever because there's four of them over the course of that many years. And what it does is it's basically saying, look, you don't get to uh, be a successful person anymore. We're going to make life, we're going to put you in a state of disadvantage. I mean, sending someone to jail or prison removes them from society, but then they come back. And there's all kinds of programs and, you know, 
resources to help people adjust to that reentry process or rejoining society. Um, not so with this, you know, four strikes and you're out, you'd never drive again issue. And if we're telling people, hey, we're going to put you on probation, you're going to serve some time, but after that, we want you to continue on your life. We want you to not abuse alcohol or drugs. We want you to uh, not be a risk to yourself or others. We want you to be a pro productive member of our community. Oh, but by the way, you can't do the same thing that everybody who would ever give you a meaningful job would require you to do, which is drive. So you can either break the law and drive anyway and hope that you don't get caught, or two, relegate yourself to living in certain places that are within walking distance of certain jobs that don't require you to drive to and from work or drive as part of work. So it's extremely limiting on what it does to someone's future. And why the legislature wanted to do that particular thing is beyond me. It is utterly nonsensical. I understand um, having penalties, but to permanently deprive somebody of the basics of life, I mean, that's worse than sending somebody to prison. It is. It's worse than, it's like sending him to debtor's prison. You know, we don't do that in this country. They, that hasn't been, that's one of the things that we decided we weren't going to do, is have permanent consequences for something that is hopefully resolvable, treatable, correctable in the corrections process, rather than a permanent fixture that the person has to deal with invariably. And think about that. When someone, yes, it'd be great if everybody knew this. So I, hopefully you're listening. And if you know anybody that has any prior drunk drivings or if you have prior drunk drivings, remember what happens under the current state of the law unless it changes. If you do get that fourth offense or higher, you're not driving ever again. So that affects your spouse if you have one, your kids if you have them. It affects you know where you can go and what you can do so that you either got to hitch a ride, take a cab, or, or take a bus or an Uber or whatever for every single thing you do in your life if you want to be a law-abiding citizen. Or, as is probably more logical, um, you'll have to live in the shadows and hope that you don't get caught um, driving a vehicle if you have to to get to and from work because you need to pay your bills and you need to pay your rent and you need to put food on the table. It's, it's well, I, I'm doing what I can. I'm talking to various legislators about this issue and i can tell you i i have the support of most judges that i know um that have thoughts on this issue so hopefully we'll change that and i get it you know we have to have consequences we have to try to change things to the better but i think that is a particularly bad idea we'll be right back you may be familiar with something called a pre-sentence investigation that's something that happens in our, that's a term we use in our Wisconsin system for a report that gets sent to a judge prior to sentencing. So after a conviction, but prior to sentencing. So it's usually a Department of Corrections person, um, usually a probation agent that works with the Department of Corrections that will assemble a report. And there's a number of things they look into. A lot of it is sort of, you know, a biographical sketch of the person's upbringing, problems they may have had, 
setbacks they may have overcome, uh, education level, job history, substance abuse history, criminal history, uh, family, friends, social skills, all kinds of things go into this report. And it's designed to give a judge more information so that uh, two, two things. One, so that a judge has something to base their decision-making on when they're determining what an appropriate sentence should be. They can tie it to certain facts, but also just because it's generally a better practice to be able to have that information gathered ahead of time in the context where it can add some life to um, the real the real issue, which is how does a judge make a determination that's going to affect this person's life tremendously, as well as other participants in the process, whether they're family members or victims of a crime or whatever the case may be. It's a way to try and allow for more detail and more, frankly, precision to be used in the process. So pre-sentence investigations are used in felony cases. And if you recall what we were talking about in the last segment, we were talking about how in OWIs, drunk driving cases, fourth offenses and higher are felonies. And it's pretty common that a judge would want a pre-sentence investigation to be conducted in a situation like that, especially if the prior convictions on the person's record go back a very long time. And, of course, judges would want to know what was the punishment last time something like this happened. It's also really important for judges to know, is this just a drunk driving problem or are there other is there other criminal conduct like in a different context is the does the person engage in criminal activity above and beyond just getting behind the wheel when they shouldn't because they've had too much <clears throat> and and that actually does say a lot it's pretty uncommon in my experience for someone to have a large you know to have a history with drinking and driving they don't tend to have uh, criminal conduct in other aspects of their lives. It tends to be that issue. Now, that's not universal. Of course, there there's that other type of person that just commits a lot of crimes, like all the time, and then you throw in a few drunk driving things here and there. Well, yeah, it's it's all part of the process. But again, this is something that really applies in felony cases. Now, remember what I said about how a third offense or higher, a defendant has to start their sentence immediately upon being sentenced. They're supposed to be sentenced immediately upon being convicted. Now, there's an exception to that if the judge wants a pre-sentence investigation, which, again, is pretty common in in this particular scenario. So think about it. Someone could be charged with some form of homicide or a sexual assault or substantial battery or, you know, mail fraud, wire fraud, embezzlement who knows and they can go before the judge and if they whether they have a trial or whether they have uh, a plea agreement and they enter into a plea there's nothing in the law that says that person has to get sentenced right away after conviction and that they have to start their sentence right away sometimes they do depending on the severity of the offense and if the judge believes that someone's a flight risk after being convicted sure that can happen but even in those scenarios, there's a pre-sentence investigation that gets ordered. So think about the quandary here. We're talking about somebody who has a fourth offense. It's the one and only felony they've ever had. They have no other criminal history. 
they're obviously not a flight risk because they would like, like to, you know, they're not going to give up their life and leave forever. But because of this odd law that requires somebody to be in custody, like right away, because of that doctor in Waukesha, you know, it's that guy's fault. Um, now we have this struggle because someone who gets sentenced, they don't have to go to prison on a fourth offense or higher. Well, you do if it's a higher one, high, much higher one. But on a fourth offense, someone can serve as little as six months in jail, um, you know, as a condition of probation. And they can get work release on that. So yet they have to do that right away upon being sentenced. So there's no time for someone to make those arrangements. And if someone's supposed to be in custody upon conviction, that means that the person has to sit and wait for the Department of Corrections to conduct a pre-sentence investigation where they're not getting out and they're not working. The quickest turnaround I've seen on a pre-sentence investigation is about 45 days. So, you know, it's another part of the process that hasn't been really well thought out because if someone's going to be eligible for community confinement with the possibility of work release as part of an authorized sentence, it is perfectly allowable on a fourth offense for somebody to not have to go to prison. They can certainly have that kind of sentencing structure. Given that, um, it is kind of counterproductive if somebody, if the judge wants more information and wants to make an accurate sentencing decision and wants it to be something that they can, you know, rely upon, uh, they're going to have to put the person in custody for 45 days, 60 days or whatever. Now, I should stand corrected. I mean, the, the minimum penalty for a fourth offense can go as low as 60 days, actually. Um, six months is what we see oftentimes as a, as a guideline, I should say, because a lot of counties and different judicial districts with the counties that make up those judicial districts have guidelines. And that's, some, that's kind of a target range that we see for a lot of guidelines. But technically, the minimum is 60 days. So somebody could spend the entire period of time that they would have to serve in a best-case scenario, sitting in jail waiting for a pre-sentence investigation to be drafted and then a sentence to be imposed, which, again, the because of that process, because of that mandatory nature of that reporting law and the, the timing of things, it has the effect of the judge having to either be deprived of that information or somebody not being able to continue working, uh, which we want people to work. We want people to have good, steady, you know, good paying jobs. That's part of being successful in life. I mean, it doesn't matter what someone's done. If they've served their time and they can work hard and, and be good, we want them to do that. You know, that's, we're supposed to believe in our system. We're supposed to believe that things can be corrected. Sending the message that you can't ever be trusted to operate any kind of motor vehicle ever again for the rest of your life isn't rehabilitative at all. And even the most punitive corrective sentences, you know, I guess with the exception of life in prison, serve some sort of rehabilitative function because we're not a society that relies upon punishment for punishment's sake. Um, we don't do that. There was a time period when our laws were much more primitive and countries around the world operated in a much more primitive way where, yes, you know, 
<clears throat> think about the classic um, punishment for somebody in the Roman era if they got caught stealing. Well, they get your hand cut off so you can't steal anymore, or it makes it harder. So you've only got one other hand to steal with. And if you steal with that hand, you lose that hand too. Um, that's kind of the <laughs> that's kind of what this law is. Oh, if you drive, you're not gonna you're never gonna drive again. Never. You can't. You know, the you've probably heard me talk on the show before about how they used to take people's cars away. That was that was an interesting law because it was such a burden uh, on the state and for storage facilities and having to pay off bank loans that most cars were not fully owned or paid off. And the state went down the foolish path of seizing cars all over the place as part of a potential penalty for third offenses and higher. Then they had all these cars that they didn't know what to do with. And they were losing tons and tons and tons of taxpayer dollars because they'd have to pay the banks off to get the title released on these things. So for a period of time, that was mandatory. It was a bad experiment. It didn't work out very well. Um, so sometimes I think the lesson learned is that a lot of these efforts to tinker with the process in these what seem like small little ways can have big impacts and mistakes are made. And then we got to go back and fix them, which has happened in the past. So maybe we'll go back and fix this one too. I don't know. All right. I hope you've had an enjoyable time listening to the show. And you can tune in next week, as you can every week, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.